Hello, and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran, and I'm a senior agent at Andrea Brown Literary Agency, prepping kids' books from picture books through YA. Today is kind of a bonus episode, because I've been trying to be monthly, but the June episode didn't come out until July, so I'm making up for it. So today, my guest is my Andrea Brown Literary Agency colleague, senior agent Jen Rofay. She, like me, represents all kinds of children's books, and she's going to help me answer some listener questions. It is Ask an Agent Live. Let me see if I can get Jen on the line. Hi, Jen. Hi, Jen. (laughs) So you are here today to help me answer some burning listener questions. These are ones that I've been asked both on the Patreon and on the Ask an Agent Tumblr, but I need help just knocking them out. Are you okay with that? Yes, let's do it. Okay. First of all, before we get into it, why don't you tell us the basics? How long have you been an agent? What kind of books do you rep? Sure. I I think I've been an agent for about 12 years. Uh, there was one year in there that I, I, I took a little bit of time off, but um, that was just for personal reasons. But beyond that, it's been full steam ahead for about 12 years. And I represent picture book through YA, but I focus a lot on author illustrators, illustrators, and middle grade. So YA is what I do the least of, but I do still represent YA. I know people would never forgive me if I didn't ask, are you open to submissions? I am open to submissions. I am always open to submissions. Is there a way that people can query you? Just following the submission guidelines on the agency website which I will link to. Wonderful. Um, And what style or voice do you kind of gravitate toward, do you feel? Um, That's a great question. And I feel like it's hard to answer, though, when I stop and really think about what kind of materials I like reading in my personal life, and then even for work, it tends to be character based. So I tend to fall for a character regardless of what the genre is. Um, What are you looking for anything specific in particular right now? Middle grade. I think I'm getting ready for some more middle grade, any kind of middle grade. I love it all. But again, there has to be a character that I I love and really get behind. Um, I'm always open to illustrators. I love working with illustrators. It's one of my favorite parts of my work. Nice. Um, And some of the illustrators you represent are? Eliza Wheeler, Mike Bolt, Amber Wren. Those are just a few. Um, I'm going to link to some of those in the show notes too, so that people can get a sense of your taste. I think that when you look at your client list, you can kind of tell what kind of stuff you like. So thank you also, but I want to point out about illustrators is I feel like I make the concerted effort to have illustrators who all look different from each other. Yes. Um, yes, but also, I mean, I don't know. I feel like, like all my illustrators are really different, but you can still, yeah, I think you can tell I, that they're I, Absolutely. I recognize a Gen L illustrator immediately. I'm like, oh, we're like this. <laughs> Those are the weird ones. <laughs> okay. So now that that's out of the way, let's get to those listener questions. Okay. Okay. These ones are about queries, kind of. So <laughs> I kind of grouped them in categories, if you will. So a listener asks, I recently heard that some picture book agents will accept multiple book queries. I'm guessing it helps them determine how deep the writer's story well is. Can you discuss this along with how many finished or published picture book stories a writer should have on deck in case an agent likes the first queried story but wants to see more? 
Well, I'm not sure what there is to discuss about it. I think that's accurate. Some people, some agents are open to that. I'm imagining some aren't. What I always recommend when I do presentations on writing strong queries, in this case, for picture books in general, I recommend that a writer query for one specific project. But in the query, the writer should mention, I also have available manuscript XYZ, which is about XYZ. And also, same thing for for another picture book text. The reason being um, that creates the space for the agent to say, oh, I would also love to see those send them along, which is another way of saying that I feel like it's smart for a picture book writer to have three or four on deck manuscripts. Yeah, I would concur with that. I mean, I will say in your query, your first query for me, I don't want to see a laundry list of like paragraph after paragraph of different books. Like when you say query one project, I mean the bulk of the query should be one project. And then at the bottom, one line about the other ones. Exactly. One sentence. Like this is the one sentence description about those other manuscripts. Because I feel like when I'm looking at queries anyway, I'm trying to look quickly. I'm trying to read thoroughly, but I'm looking quickly and I can get overwhelmed and confused very easily. (laughs) Like, you know, I'm a human. (laughs) If I get 10 paragraphs of text, I I just blank out and I don't understand what I'm reading. Absolutely. But also what I find is annoying, and maybe this isn't the case for other agencies. I don't like it when I open up my query folder and there's five emails in a row from the same person, all with a separate query for five different picture book manuscripts. That makes me batty. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or... You decline it, and then they immediately say, okay, how about this one? Uh, right. <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> so I would say your advice is spot on. One query, mentioning a few other ones, so that then when you have the conversation, if they love the first book, they'll want to see more books. Exactly. Okay. So, and this is for picture books only, by the way. I would not expect a novelist to have multiple novels. No. But picture books, because they're so short. Um. I mean, I feel like it's good to know that somebody's not a one-trick pony. Exactly. Okay, next question. Do agents ever ask what other story story ideas a writer has in order to help them determine which one is more marketable and therefore what they should focus on next? I guess what I'm not understanding about this question is at what point in the process this question is being asked. Um, mm. Yes, I do have this conversation with my clients when they're embarking on a new project. They might have a couple of ideas in mind, especially my picture book writers. So one of them, a picture book client might send me five ideas, five you know short synopses, and I'll say, you know what, this one sounds the strongest. Let's focus there. Um, I feel like this happens a little less frequently with, with my novelists. Um, so I think it just depends at what point in the process this question is being asked. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I mean, I think actually for me, it happens more often with novelists. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times picture book people will just write something because it's not long, but a novelist is more like trepidatious about getting into the weeds on a book that might be going in the wrong direction or something. So they might ask me, you know, I've got three ideas, which one now, of course, my advice is always you should write the one you feel the most passionate about. But if you're asking me which one do I think has the m- most 
marketability or the most zing or whatever for me, like I can guide you in that way. I mean, ultimately, you shouldn't write something you hate just because I said it might be marketable. But um, well, sometimes it's hard to know too. Like you might tell me an idea, and I think that sounds terrible. But then <laughs> you write three chapters, and I'm like, this is incredible. This is so fantastic. So sometimes you also just can't tell until you have a little bit of something to read. Absolutely. I mean, I think that so many of my books, uh, I would be like, what if you just explained them <laughs> in a long time? Like Kate Messner's Rolling Thunder, which is a picture book in verse about um, Vietnam POWs. Mm-hmm. When she told me she was writing that, I was like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right it to me i went oh <laughs> but the book is so beautiful and it, there's a point at which i've read it a hundred times i cry every time mm-hmm. it's like an absolutely gorgeous book so yeah. what do i know right <laughs> exactly this it's so subjective who knows <laughs> all right so um next question do you typically have a gut reaction to a manuscript and just know or do you have to read it over multiple times to determine your interest uh, a little bit of both. I, I mean, I've, I've been wrong where I think maybe something isn't going to sell or it's not going to work and then I sell it at auction. Uh, and then there's also the opposite, which is I'm reading something and I'm five pages in and I'm making the sub list in my head. These are the editors who are going to love it. So I think that it's a little bit of both. There's, there's gotta be some gut reaction and, and sometimes I'm just absolutely proven wrong. I think, but that also leads into a little bit of this, which we don't have to stray too much on. I think that there is this misrepresentation about how an agent should love everything that you write. And I don't think that's accurate. Do you love every song written by your favorite band? Probably not, but you still love that band. And so I feel it's the same way. I don't love every single thing my clients write, but I can recognize the value in it or the strength in it. I agree with that. I mean, sometimes if you, I mean, there might be something that you feel like you just cannot sell. Of course. Um, but uh, but I do think for the most part, like if I love a client's writing, I'm probably going to keep loving their writing. I, sure, I might love the writing. I might not get it the same way I get this other story, but I can love the writing or love the characters or recognize like, yes, this can sell even if I'm not in love with it the way I've been in love with a different manuscript of theirs. Yeah. I mean, I will say though, if if it's somebody who's not your client yet – that's kind of a different story because I feel like um, maybe once or twice in my life, I admit that I have signed something because I thought, oh, this will sell. Mm-hmm. Like, this is hot. This will sell. And then- Even though maybe I didn't personally feel like I had the – this was, like, very early in my career. Um, I, you know, maybe I'm personally not passionate about it, but I can see why this would sell. And it didn't sell. And I feel like that's a common misstep in an agent's early career. I mean, I, I did that too, where there was a type of project that I wanted to be good at and I wanted to be able to sell. And so I signed on some of those projects and then obviously it just did not go well. And once I was able to really hone in on what I am actually good at, then it goes much better. So yes, initially, if someone is querying me, I have to have the feels for it or else I can't do it. Right. Um. 
I'd love to hear you chat about signing a writer who's parted ways with another agent. Is it helpful for the writer to say that in the query? Do you ask them about the reason they split with the other agent or even ask what happened or ask that agent what happened? Or is it just a common enough thing that you don't think much of it? Oh, I absolutely think about it. I I definitely think it should be mentioned in a query because that's the kind of thing that if I find out, I'll wonder why that information wasn't revealed to me initially. So it makes me then question the writer. Um, I, if it's someone I'm interested in working with, I will ask what happened. Why did you part ways? Is, you know, what, was there some complication in the relationship? Were you just no longer seeing eye to eye on projects? Like what, what happened? Because it's, it's informative. I want to get a sense for why this relationship was no longer working, especially if it's the, the former agent went out with this one project to 30 editors, everyone rejected it, but I'm not willing to give up on it. That's really crucial to know. Mm. And I mean, I want to make sure that I'm not going to make the same misstep that the first agent did. If it's a, uh, you know, something about communication, like they didn't mm. tell me X, Y, Z, then I want to make sure that I'm not going to be doing the same thing. Exactly. About asking the agent, though, I have never personally, I've never gone to the other agent and said, hey, what happened? What's the scoop? Because uh, I feel like that's awkward. It is. I mean, I've had once or twice an agent reach out to me to say, hey, what's like, do you recommend this person? <laughs> what happened? Mm-hmm. Um, and you, generally speaking, I mean, I can't recommend them highly enough. For the most part, like if we part ways, it's because we're just moving in two different directions. It's been incredibly rare that there's been an instance where I've parted ways with a client because of uh, misbehavior. Um, (laughs) um, So yes, typically parting ways with a client is just for whatever reason, we're not connecting anymore. Yeah. And I have been happy to tell anyone how great they are. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, it just isn't working for me right now or whatever, but, or I'm not working for them, but, uh, but they're not bad people to work with or anything. So I'm right. happy to give that recommendation, but, um, I don't think I've ever asked myself another agent anyway. Okay. Um, what about writers who get an offer from an editor first and then want to find an agent to negotiate that deal and represent them moving forward? How receptive are agents when someone comes with a deal in hand looking for representation? It would depend how much bandwidth that agent has. We get those kinds of queries all the time at the agency, which we then share with each other. Uh, But an offer in hand doesn't necessarily mean that I personally am going to jump because still I want to like you. I want to like what you're working on. But it's definitely an inroad to finding an agent. Yeah. I mean, I would say... publisher. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say if it's a publisher that I work with often and have a relationship with the editor, I might be more receptive. Mm -hmm. If it is a tiny press that I've never worked with, then I'd probably be more hesitant. But I'd still also have to really love the book. Yeah. Because my name's still going to be on the deal. I think what might be important to touch on is why you might be hesitant with a smaller publisher. And I think part of the reason is that Oftentimes, contract negotiations with those smaller publishers can be wrought and drawn out. And it can take a lot of time to have a or to settle on a strong contract with a smaller publisher. Yeah. Um, It's, I tend to find 
that <laughs> I don't know if there's a rule of thumb, if I'm cursed or what, but the smallest deals are often the most difficult to negotiate. A hundred percent. And so it's a lot of work, you know, experience. Also, I had this one project, this was years ago, that it took me ages to sell, I finally sold it to a big publisher. It was like 50 emails back and forth. It was taking so long to come to terms on this, where even the client who I no longer work with, but the client at the time was basically like, why is this taking so long? And I said, I don't know, but I have 50 emails back and forth. This book actually ended up doing super well. It it had a um, a lucky scenario that resulted in a massive buy-in. So it, it ended up being nicely profitable for everybody, but this was a tiny deal that took months to negotiate. Well, that's a good outcome. It was so. a great outcome. It was a completely unexpected, exciting outcome. But um, but I hear you on the uh, there's like there's a, what's the word I'm looking for? There's just like a disconnect between the amount of money and the amount of time. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I would say if you have if you do have an offer from a publisher already the first and, but you want to get an agent. The first thing is do not say yes. Yes. Do not say yes at all. Do not agree to anything. Because if you've agreed to the deal, then an agent won't be able to help you anymore. Mm -hmm. So say, thank you. I'm still in the middle of my agent search. I will be in touch with you as soon as possible. And if you cannot find an agent, there are resources available like SCBWI, for instance. And there are even some, um, sort of like growing agents who will, for a fee, do some contract negotiation for you. Yeah. Or you can get an entertainment lawyer to just do that, you know, one contract anyway. Exactly. Um, but so basically it's not a magic bullet to getting an agent, but it certainly, I will look quickly if I know you have an offer. So, um, so I would say also in your letter put, I have an offer, like in the subject line. In the subject line, exactly. Offer offer, f- offer from Random House. Then I will look very quickly. Yes. Offer from Schmucko Press? Maybe yeah. not, but. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, next on the docket. So this is more, this category is more about agents. So a listener asks, I gather that there are different styles of agents with varying strengths and strategies. In the conference, panels, blogs, podcasts I've consumed, I've heard about the go-getter, business shark kind of agent who expects the writer to make the book perfect on his or her own, the editorial agent who helps shape and grow the project, there's the agent who zeroes in on the immediate sale, and the agent who wants to grow an author's career. I'm sure these are oversimplifications, and perhaps the strategies are not mutually exclusive. Uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of either approach? Are there other choices or strategies? Please elucidate the complications and nuances for us. Sorry, that was long. <laughs> um, this is a very articulate question. Um, I, it, you know, so much depends on what the writer wants. There are some writers who absolutely do not want to do any editorial work with an agent. They just want that business shark to get out there, make a big deal and call it a day. They don't want the agent to offer anything else. Fine. That's great. Go get that kind of agent. Uh, then there's an editorial agent. And I'd say at ABLA, we are all editorial agents and we consider it part of our role to help make the manuscript as strong as possible so that we can get as much interest as possible. Um, so it just depends on what you want. Do you want someone who wants to build a career with you? Do you want someone who just wants to manage one project at a time? Depends what you're looking for. And I would say that those are 
are not mutually exclusive. I mean, I think we are at ABLA, we do editorial work, but we also are anxious to get the best deals possible. So um, I don't think that those things are mutually exclusive. Um, right. It's like, are there other choices or strategies? Well, I mean, sure, there's a blend of both. There's something in the middle there that's not, you know, it's not so, it's not so black and white here that you're either the shark or you're either the editorial. Yeah. And editorial does not mean that you're, you know, some sort of coddling, like mommy cheerleader or something like that. Like you also are savvy business person and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think that the general um, premise of the question is a little bit flawed because I think we all contain multitudes. Exactly. <laughs> Even agents. Okay. So next up, what should an author do to prepare for the call? What resources exist to help make an informed decision? So when people say the call to clarify, they mean the call where an agent says, oh my God, I love your work. I want to sign you. What should an author do to prepare for that? That's, that's a great question. I think do all the research you can online about that agent and the agency. That's easy to do because, uh, because authors and illustrators, they like to talk. And so there's lots of information out there. Um, I mean, arguably, I would say you should have done that research before you even query. Yeah, but- true. You absolutely should have done that research before you query. But at this point, you might want to do a little more digging if you haven't done that much. Um, you know, reading interviews online, whatever, do that kind of stuff. There are available resources out there, maybe including from the AAR about questions that you should have lined up to ask an agent. Um, You should know a little bit more about the author, I'm sorry, about the agent's client list. I think that's smart. Um, I think that's the gist of preparing for the call. I think you should also be prepared to not say yes right away. You are allowed to say, great, thank you. I'm going to take some time to think about it. So I don't, I don't, I feel like a, a writer and illustrator should never be pressured in the moment to say yes right away. And oftentimes they'll walk away from the conversation and realize that they have more questions that they want to follow up with. So they should take, they should take their time it's amazing when a person you're offering representation to says yes immediately. I love it. It's like so fantastic. But I also recognize the importance of taking a minute to make sure your head is on straight. Absolutely. Um, and what resources exist? Yeah, as you say, online there's questions. I will link to some good questions that people might ask, but I also feel like most agents probably have a spiel ready. Mm-hmm. Like when I have the call, I already am going to talk about what the agency is like, how we communicate and all that stuff. So I probably answer your questions before you even ask them. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also want to make sure that I tell the author how much I love the book and what I love about it. And if I think that there are editorial things to do, what those things might be. Mm-hmm. So if the agent doesn't tell you that, ask them. No. An agent might be hesitant to offer too much in terms of editorial on a call. I don't want to give someone all my thoughts and then they go say yes to someone else and use all my thoughts on their review. No, of course. But I might give nuggets of, you know, this is what I recognize the strengths are. These are some things I wondered about. Publishers Marketplace is a great place just to go and look at the deals an agent has made. Um, And a way to go look at deals the agency has made as a whole and what is the agency's ranking. So you get a sense for how strong of an agency they are also. Yeah, and you can get a subscription to Publishers Marketplace. It's $25 a month. So when you're querying, maybe just subscribe for a month or even share a subscription between people. Um, I think it could be really useful. Okay, here's one that I've never had people ask. 
Um, how do agents get paid? I know agents get a 15% commission, so the right they sell, rights they sell, but how about things like insurance, maternity leave? Are there benefits to being an agent in an agency like ABLA, bonuses, paid vacation, promotion-based raises, etc.? Should we have a good laugh right now? <laughs> yeah, I was like, I am going to cry laughing at this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it depends on the agency you work at. There are some agencies where you are salaried, and I'm sure you have things like maternity leave and insurance and, and those things um, without giving away too many secrets about ABLA because we keep some things close to our chests. Uh, we are entirely commission-based. The benefit to that is, is that we get to make our schedules and determine how much we want to work or are able to work. Um, but, but the downside is that we don't have insurance. We don't have, um, you know, like maternity leave through the agency. So that, that's, that's the hard part. But, but for me, it is financially beneficial because it offers me work-life balance that, that I need. Fortunately, though, I also have a husband who has, you know, the job that provides the insurance and all, all those necessary life things that I don't get through work. Yeah, I don't have that. So I just pay for them. Right. And before <laughs> I had the husband, I just paid for them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't mind being commission only, but uh, it is hard when you're, especially when you're starting out because, um, because you don't have a regular paycheck. And so me, you know how everybody says how slow publishing is that goes for getting paid too. Um, so I think the first few years, especially, can be very dicey for a new agent. Yes, it's really hard, and you need another job or some other, you know, some other source of income, whatever that might be, which opens up this whole other completely different conversation that we do not need to get into about pr- publishing and privilege. That's a whole different thing, but um, it's not for the faint of heart. Absolutely. Um, so, what do you look for both in your? What do you both look for? I guess for both of us, what do you both look for in your clients slash writers that signals a positive and successful partnership other than compelling stories, of course? I feel like good communication definitely matters. I feel like more than anything, my clients who are most successful are the ones who are really able, they're really open to notes and to revision. They, they, they know they know what to fight for in terms of their vision. And they also know where they can afford to take input and at least consider it. I think that's, I think that's one of the most important things that a writer needs to be able to do. And same with an illustrator in terms of growing his or her craft. It's um, the ability to recognize ways that you can grow and being open to input. Yeah. I mean, I think I've said before that uh, I think it's really important for clients to be flexible too. Like if something isn't working, maybe try the next thing um, or be willing to have, be open to the universe and open to new ideas and don't get so addicted to one story that you can't move on. Yeah. Um, because I think that most of my most successful clients, maybe we didn't sell the first book. Um, or maybe there's a project that we just can't sell, but then they have new ideas. Um, so that's how they've found a great deal of success. So I realize that this might sound completely off topic, but I promise it's not. I read this fantastic book over the summer. I actually listened to the to the audio of it. Um, it's it was it's about 
Food Network. I'll, I'll remember the title in a bit, but it's about how Food Network started. It's basically the history of Food Network. And it was fascinating because you see how it started as this teeny tiny public television um, not even network sort of programming and how it grew into the food network that we know today. But what was most fascinating about it was to hear the history of each of the different food network personalities. And so like, for instance, Emerald was the very, very biggest deal for many, many years, but Emerald wasn't necessarily good at evolving and growing. And ultimately the network had to let him go because the taste of the audience was changing and evolving. And, but then there's Bobby Flay, who has a remarkable ability to figure out how to come up with new ideas and how to grow and how to evolve. And I just thought the whole thing was so completely relevant to artists and creators in general. I feel like it would be a great book for, for writers to listen to or to read for that very reason. Now I have to read it. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I don't know if reading the book would be as scintillating as listening to it, but I so enjoyed listening to the book. And now I have to find what it was called because I can't remember off the top of my head. But before this podcast is over, I will let you know so you can link to it. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> um, okay, next question. I've been ghostwriting for a while. I'm curious how to go about finding agents who represent others' work while also helping find more exclusive work for higher jobs for clients. Um, the same way you would go about finding a general agent? Yeah. I mean, I think we'd all represent work for hire and we all get queries from editors about work for hire things. I mean, it's not like that happens every day, but if I know that if an editor approaches me and they have a great work for hire opportunity and I know that my authors write great work for hire, then I will hook them up. Exactly. And I have some clients who the bulk of their career is based around work for hire. They really enjoy doing it. Yeah. Um, next up, are there agents out there who will represent a picture book only author? It seems that most agents want somebody who either also has a novel to sell or is a picture book author illustrator. I assume this is because picture books are not very lucrative, but what's a picture book writer to do? I feel like this is one of those questions that has existed for as long as I've been an agent and I've never quite understood it because I have a lot of picture book only authors. And I know other agents who have the same. So I'm not quite sure where this comes from. Well, I mean, I get it. I, I would like my picture book. I mean, most of my authors write picture books and chapter books and middle grade or, you know, middle grade. And occasionally they write a picture book. I have a few authors who only write picture books, but even those authors typically also write some nonfiction or some graphic novels or something like that. They're just maybe not writing only picture book scripts mm -hmm. um, or they are author illustrators. I mean, there's several reasons. First of all, and I wrote a big long blog post about this the other day, but um, or on the Tumblr, but, um, but basically picture book authors are extremely prolific a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So in the time that it, you know, in the year that it takes a novelist to write a novel, a picture book author might, write 12 picture books, but I can't necessarily sell 12 picture books, but I still have to read and evaluate all of them, which takes time. And sometimes the submitting them, it's a little bit of a puzzle. Like I can't submit 12 picture books at the same time. I just right. can't. Mm -hmm. So um, I can't submit four at the same time, in fact. So I need to be judicious and like strategize and all that stuff. 
Plus, a picture book author only gets paid a third of what a picture book author illustrator gets paid. And they get paid, you know, probably less than a third of what a novelist gets paid. So not to be a jerk or anything, but it's there. It's more work for less money. That's true. I think um, in my case, it's probably the smallest percentage of my clients who write only picture books. However, they are all exceptional picture book authors who have a very clear and specific perspective. And so I feel like they really, really stand out in the market and their picture books make decent money in terms of the advance. And they also earn royalties generally. Um, Or I have greater success selling their projects and it's a joy for me to work for them. So in in my case, personally, if you are writing only picture books, they have to be so exceptional and stand out that I'm willing to put in that effort and energy for upfront smaller money. And I say upfront because I have some picture book authors who make quite good money on royalties. Absolutely. And I mean, again, I'm not sitting around bean counting. How much money am I going to make off this? I'm thinking, do I love this? And if I certainly have, I mean, I'm not even a picture book specialist and I have people who only write picture books. So clearly agents who rep picture books will typically represent author only. I say in my, what I'm looking for, I say, I want people who write in multiple genres or people who are author illustrators because, you know, because I do want those things, but I still get queries for picture books only. And sometimes I sign them. So these are questions about being on submission. Let's talk about submission lists. Like the book is ready to hit editor's desks. How do you as an agent decide how many publishers to send a manuscript out to? Are there reasons you'd pick a junior editor over a more senior editor that might have more clout? The length of my sublist depends on the manuscript itself and how commercial or marketable I think it might be and or, or how widely um, how 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 wide the interest might be. There are, there are some things that might feel a little more niche. And I think that there might be five editors who really like it. Generally, one of my sublists is it could be anywhere from five to 10 editors. It just completely depends. Um, how I go about picking an editor really has to do with the, the content more than anything. Though I do have some higher level clients who I would send a project to a more senior editor just because of where they are in their career. To me, I've agreed. I mean, I think it's a project by project and some projects, like let's say a client already has five publishers that they work with. I might start by sending to those five people (laughs) rather than sending to a bunch of new people. Um, Or let's say a project is very niche, a specific kind of, book that not that many publishers publish, then I'd focus on that. And as far as senior versus junior, I kind of tend to go with who I think will like the book the best. Uh Because I feel like that passion, just as I need a certain amount of passion to sign up somebody, an editor will need that in order to be the best advocate for that book in-house. So a junior editor might, if they're passionate about the book, they're probably going to be better than 
a senior editor who feels lukewarm about the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I don't want anyone who's lukewarm about a project to sign it on. I want someone who's really gung-ho is going to fight for it in-house and with marketing and with all those necessary committees. Yeah. And editors also leave all the time. <laughs> so That's true, all the time. Uh, you know, I mean, I wouldn't get too hung up on that kind of thing. And editors grow. I mean, I um, have books with executive, you know, senior editors and publishers. When they started 10 years ago, they were new editors. Mm-hmm. And um, they've grown with my authors. So that's a thing. Absolutely. I think, I feel like there was something recently on the Twitters about what a sub list should or shouldn't look like. And, you know, someone having some very strong opinion about it. And I don't, it was, you know, some kind of brouhaha like that. And there's no hard and fast answer to that. It completely depends on the project, on the author. There are so many considerations to consider. Yeah. And I would say, if you have questions about it, talk to your agent. (laughs) You know, I have a reason why I send everything to every editor that I send to. Mm -hmm. I have done research. I know that they love books about dogs playing poker or whatever it is. Um, I mean, I know why I'm sending. So if you have questions about why, let let, ask me. It is is literally our job to know this information. This is like the bulk of our job. And it's our job to talk to you about it. If you, you know, to explain what you need explained. So if you ever have questions about that kind of thing, please do ask. Which also leads into your agent should be willing to share the sublist before sending it out. I always share the sublist with my clients and I explain why. I also ask my clients, is there anyone who you think should see this based on conferences they've attended or whatever research they've done on their own? And let's say they mention one editor at Penguin and I, I sometimes will say, oh yeah, great idea. Or sometimes I'll say, actually, the reason why that's not the strongest pick is for these reasons. And I tell them the other editor I have in mind at Penguin. So those conversations should be had with an agent. Absolutely. And that isn't to say that you have to have a list of people. But if you do, you know, if you're the type of person who goes to a lot of conferences, who listen to a lot of podcasts, whatever, and you have dream editors, tell me. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least I can I can look at that and help you make an informed decision. Um, Ultimately, this is your book. It's not my book. So I want you to be happy and understand where things are going and why and all that stuff. Okay. On to the next question, which is, uh, okay. (laughs) How long is too long to be waiting for a response from editors? My agent has still not heard back. By this, I mean the editors say the manuscript is still under consideration, but no final decision has been made from some first-round editors, and it's been almost nine months. Is that typical? No, that's outrageous. The agent should have moved on at that point. I always check in. I do my first check-in at four to six weeks. I will do at least one or two more check-ins a couple weeks apart. And if I have not heard at that point, I'm considering it a pass, and I will pick someone else at that at that publisher. Yeah, I pretty much same. I mean, it depends on the length of the project and the time of year and stuff like that. But I try and check in several times. And if they're really not responding, then I will send a final check in that says, hey, 
I assume that this is a no from you. Yes. <laughs> um, and which often prompts a response. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, some editors are just black holes and they're not going to respond. Right. Or if they, you know, they're just like conflict avoidant, <laughs> passive aggressive. They just don't want to respond. So, and we tend to know that at the agency who is a black hole, who's passive aggressive in that way. Um, and oftentimes the way you say, hey, I'm assuming this, this is a no. Sometimes I'll just send an email that says, hey, heads up, I'm sending this to other people at, scholastic whatever yeah absolutely um long story short nine months is really long that's just and, really long and um i would say that she needs to do another round for sure yeah. okay from the time your book dummy or manuscript gets acquired to publication how many more revisions can an author or illustrator <laughs> expect to do before publication if you've been revising with your agent prior to submission would an editor make major changes I would expect they'd make major changes still. We are not editors. We are agents. What editors do is far superior to what I can do. But I am pretty good at getting something in shape for an editor to say, ha-ha, this is, this is strong enough. There's clear vision, whatever, whatever. Um, even after doing a couple rounds with clients, I will see editorial letters from editors that are like three pages long. And they three pages? Oh, seven pages, whatever. <laughs> it can go from three to 10 pages. And they really get into the weeds in a much different way than an agent might. Um, I, I would say at a minimum, you can expect at least two rounds of revision at a minimum. And that doesn't count copy edits. Okay. Well, you know what? You've been a champion answering all these questions. So now it's time for the segment everyone loves best, which is what are you obsessed with? <laughs> Now, this does not have to be bookish, but it can be. I will go first. Okay. I'm currently obsessed with this competition show on Netflix. think it's like in the vein of Project Runway or Top Chef, but it's called Blown Away, and it's about glass blowers. Um, I admit I never thought for a second in my life about glass blowers prior <laughs> to seeing the show, but they're amazing. These people are like a cross between artisans and athletes. The work is really physically demanding, and it, it requires agility and a level of fearlessness because the stuff they are bending and twisting and blowing and throwing in the air is molten hot, like on fire lava, literally. <laughs> um, but it's also incredibly delicate. And so they can do hours worth of work and just destroy it in a split second. Yeah. It's bonkers. I love it. These artists are really at the top of their game. So at the end of each episode, basically each episode, they have a theme. Like you have to make something botanical or you have to make something that's a, uh, shows the body in motion or whatever and at the end of each episode they show the finished work and it's gorgeous astonishing also each episode is only like 25 minutes long which i love so yes i recommend blown away on netflix well i think that might become my next obsession because i love glass art and i had no idea that this existed and so i will have to check this out it sounds like those baking competitions where you have to make a themed cake and yes, you can't absolutely. drop it at the last minute while you're moving it to the display <laughs> table. <laughs> right. But it's a lot, at least if you kind of slip while you're holding a cake, yeah. you can probably resurrect it. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, Jen Rofe, what are you obsessed with? So my husband and I just binge watched six seasons of The Americans, which is that fantastic show about the illegals, which are the Russian spies that pretended to be Americans living in America. Uh, so I have become obsessed with Russian spies and 
illegals. And I have been reading articles about the illegals and what they did and how they did this and the way that their children got caught up in it when they were ultimately arrested. The show takes place in the 80s, but the illegals actually happened in like the 2000s. basically when Putin came to power um, and children of these illegals who were arrested did not know that their parents were Russian or that they were Russian spies until the FBI comes busting in and that the whole truth gets revealed. And then they get sent off to Russia. They're not, they don't consider them. Yes. They don't consider themselves Russian. They don't actually speak Russian. And they're, they're technically they're American because the kids would have been born in America. So they can, come back, but it creates incredible complications for them, as you can likely imagine. Um, So basically, I've become obsessed with um, these Russian illegals and the Americans in general. I'm I'm sort of on this binge of, of Googling various videos and interviews with the cast of the Americans. And for those of you who have seen it, the last episode is just like, there is this gut wrenching moment on a train that I can't get out of my head. It just like is haunting me every day. It's one of the most emotional moments on television that I have seen. The show is phenomenal, though. Very, very gory. Yikes. Oh, I was like, Oh, I got to watch it. And then you said that. And I was like, no, I don't. But you know what? I don't (laughs) like gore. Like stranger things gives me incredible anxiety watching this because of the scare factor. For some reason, watching the Americans, like the gore in it didn't give me that kind of, Anxiety, and you know I don't like scary stuff. Like I can't read half of the books you represent because, you know, <laughs> like the content. Um, but I was able to really stick with the Americans. I covered my eyes a couple times, but I was really able to stick with it. I I think it's it's just so compelling. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, Jen. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks again to Jen Rofay for hanging out with me, and thank you for listening. As always, I've put links to all the great stuff Jen and I talked about in the show notes, along with How to Query Jen, so do check that out on jenniferlawfriend.com slash literaticast. The Literaticast has a Patreon. Throw in a buck if you want to support the podcast and get sneak peeks at upcoming episodes and ask questions of our guests. In addition to paying for editing, producing, hosting this podcast, the Patreon fees also go toward my new project, which is to have each episode of the podcast transcribed. At this point, we're currently in mid to late July 2019, we have transcripts for the first eight episodes up on my website, though more are coming shortly and all episodes should have transcripts by the end of the summer. To download the transcripts, just go to that episode in the show notes and click the blue button. And to subscribe to the Patreon, go to patreon.com slash literaticat. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.